Well, thank you all. Uh, so I promise to preach quickly. I know it is almost noon, but I will go quicker than normal if you all will bear with me. Is everybody in good shape? We're going to tend to leave right at noon, where are you? If you need to go, it's okay. Um, it really is. If you need to go, it's okay. Uh, but you might remember we just finished a series on the on what it is to worship. We taught we called it Spirit and in Truth, and we finished that first Sunday series, and we were discussing with the elders like, okay, what should we teach next? And the agreement was that we really needed to teach on the Holy Spirit, and so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, and there's several reasons. One of them is that there are a whole lot of misconceptions about the, about the Holy Spirit. Uh, what I've noticed is that there are certain circles which emphasize the Holy Spirit so much, uh, but often attribute things to him that are not him. Um, in fact, a lot of people that are known false teachers will blame their trickery on the Holy Spirit. And things that are clearly not of God, they say are his. And so what happens then also is good Orthodox teachers are afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit because they don't want to sound like those guys. And so what ends up happening then is the false teachers are controlling much of the narrative on teaching on the Holy Spirit. And I've also noticed this, that even among the Orthodox faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit in clear ways. And so people get the idea that somehow the Holy Spirit is less God than the other two members of the Trinity. Or they think of the Holy Spirit as kind of like this force. Uh, and and this, bad things come of it. And so what we're going to do is take some time. We will primarily be in Acts chapter 2 today. But as is my custom, we're going to do a lot of intro. And then Acts chapter 2 is going to go pretty quick. Uh, so first thing, we need to understand some key things about the Holy Spirit. One is that he is indeed fully God. The deity of the Holy Spirit is a critical thing. Just understand he shows up in Genesis 1 as creator. Um, that's something that only God can do. He creates. Uh, Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is moving over the, over the waters in creation. Um, he moves the prophets to write the word of God. Um, we see that spiritual birth, being born of God, is done by the Holy Spirit. Uh, lying to the Holy Spirit is seen as lying to God. And also, he can't just be this weird like force that's somehow connected to the Trinity. He has to be God because he has these aspects of personhood. He has a mind. Uh, he can be grieved. Uh, we can fellowship with him. In fact, that brings us to the second reality about the Holy Spirit, is that he is a person. Please don't ever refer to the Holy Spirit as it. It's a he, right? Um, he's the third person of the Trinity. He, he can be grieved, as we already said. He can be sinned against. He speaks in articulate phrases. It's interesting. It is cults that see the Holy Spirit as kind of like a force. And it breaks my heart. I've even heard those who would call themselves evangelicals talk about the Holy Spirit as if he's like the force from Star Wars, that he kind of moves in this like immaterial, you know, meaningless, non-technical way. And I'm like, no, he's a person. He's God, brothers and sisters. Don't ignore that. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses actually see him as like a weird kind of electricity. All that's bad. This is, he's a third member of the Trinity. He's fully God and has to be worshipped as such. So, um, understanding these two principles, we're going to look at a couple of things that are happening in the Old Testament related to the Holy Spirit. And first, I want to understand a few key symbolisms. We see him referred to, it says he descends as a dove in the New Testament at the baptism of Jesus. We see fire often representative of the Holy Spirit. You might remember, and also clouds. 
You might remember that in the Old Testament, children of Israel are led by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, and that this fire or cloud rests upon the, the tent of meeting. And it's this idea that like that's how we know the Holy Spirit is there, that God is there, his presence is manifested in that way. Um, we see at times he's referred to in water languages, um, or sometimes anointing with oil is seen as like a symbol of like the Holy Spirit being upon a person. But also here's the interesting thing. When it comes to the believer, the way that we know that you are marked as God's child is the seal of the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that there's some seal that gets like put on you physically that says, okay, this is how you know the Holy Spirit. Now, the language here is that the Holy Spirit himself is the mark that you are God's child. That's going to become very important here in just a minute. But I want to understand this because when we look at the whole council of Scripture, Old Testament and New, you'll see this imagery come up to refer to the Holy Spirit. All right? So let's look at what the Holy Spirit's doing in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see him minister to specific individuals. We see him equipping some people for some kind of a theocratic function. He would come upon people, was the language that we see a lot. Uh, the prophets, the kings, the judges, he would come upon them to complete some type of task that God had for them. Um, we see one or two references for him filling someone for the building of the tabernacle in Exodus. But that seems to be pretty rare in the Old Testament. A lot of times come upon language is used for the Holy Spirit. But every now and then this filled with shows up. Um, he seems to come on at times small groups of people. And what's interesting is that it's a distinguished from the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see him just maybe a, a group of people that he does something with. He fills them. He, he comes upon them so they can complete some task. But it's never the whole people of God in the Old Testament. It's always the Holy Spirit coming on one or a small group of people. Now, understanding this, in the Old Testament, God gives his law, and he commands the people of Israel to obey it. And then we also understand that the law of God is, is built into how the universe is created. And so we have the people who are not God's people still violating God's law. And then we have God's people violating God's law, and no one was living up to it. And you might be thinking, like, Dan, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Well, kind of everything. So we see in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf, and all of our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Ex uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is no not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. There's this idea that like the sweeping language is that like everybody has a sin nature and nobody lives up to God's law. And then we see, specific to Israel, God's command is that they would obey his commandments. I shouldn't say that that way. Um, built into his covenant with them is obedience to the commandments. And there's a whole lot of if-then statements. And we see throughout the whole Old Testament, God says, here's my law. The children of Israel violate it. They break the covenant, and they suffer the consequences for it again and again. You all might remember from uh, our study of Daniel, uh, we see where, where God would even give Jerusalem over to a pagan invading force to judge Israel for their idolatry and rebellion. And you might also remember that in God's promise to Abraham that his seed was to be a blessing to all the nations. So here you have Israel, that they are supposed to be obeying God's law, and they're supposed to be 
a blessing to the nations, and yet they become corrupted by the nations, they engage in idolatry, and they violate God's law, they break his covenant. And so you have this ongoing, like throughout the whole Old Testament, it just is going bad for an obedience perspective, and they keep suffering the consequences. And so how interesting that when we start seeing predictions, promises, prophecies related to the Holy Spirit, that the language is a little bit different than what he was already doing. There's a misconception sometimes that we think that, well, the Holy Spirit didn't do anything, and then he shows up in the New Testament. Well, he was active in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, but there was this promise that something was going to be different. He was going to come in a more intense way, in a different way. So here are some of the promises. In Ezekiel 39, it says the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon Israel. Language seems to be a much more comprehensive, like on all of Israel. The Holy Spirit will remain forever. It says that he will rest on the Messiah, the mediator of this new covenant. We see this in Isaiah 11 and 42. The Holy Spirit will regenerate the heart. We see this in Ezekiel 37 and 36, which is the fulfillment of the law in man. We see reference to this also in Jeremiah 31. And then in Joel 2.28, there is this reference to the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. That's kind of big, isn't it? Because there's all this talk of God's promise to Israel. And there's reference to Israel being a blessing to the nations. And in Joel 2, it says the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. The idea is whether you're a Jew or not, you have the opportunity to have the Holy Spirit. So Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Now keeping in mind, read this in the mindset of a Jew who continually violates the law and suffers the consequences for it. You've watched, you've you've heard stories from your grandparents of Jerusalem being overrun by the Babylonians. Maybe you're in captivity. Actually, Jeremiah is written as they're about to go into captivity. right? You understand, hopefully, some of the suffering, or maybe you're reading Jeremiah years later, and you're like, yep, all this happened. But here's what is promised by the prophet Jeremiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is a little bit different, by the way. Before, the law was on the outside, and you were told to obey it, and you failed. Now the language of Jeremiah is that the law is going to be written on your heart. I will be your God. You will be my people. This is what he's saying. He says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Well, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Notice this promise related to the new covenant is that the law of God will be in his people written on their hearts. That's a big deal. For somebody who could never keep the law, it's a big deal that it's going to be in you. It's going to be part of who you are. Second, intimacy with God is built into this. He's like, you're not going to have to go around and say, hey, know the Lord. You guys are going to know him. It's going to be in you. You're going to know God. The third thing is there's this language of being forgiven and cleansed from sin. Now, hopefully you're already thinking like, okay, how is this related to the Holy Spirit? Let's have a look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel, written not long after, pretty close in time actually, to Jeremiah. 
Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22, it says this. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Do you understand what's happening here? God is saying, you have failed me. You have embarrassed me. He doesn't quite say embarrassed, but he's like, you've, made, you've muddied my name. You're my chosen people, and you sinned against me. Now you're scattered to the four winds. So it's not because of you that I'm going to do this, but I'm going to vindicate my name for the nation. So God is, he reiterates it a few times, that you failed, but I'm going to vindicate my name. So I'm going to act for my own sake, says the Lord, so that I can vindicate my name among the nations. And he says, I'm going to begin by bringing you into the land. And then verse 25 says this, I will sprinkle you clean. I will sprinkle clean water on you, that is. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This sounds a lot like what we see in Jeremiah, right? The language now, though, is not just that the law of God is written on the hearts, but now my very spirit will be in you. And I will cause you, by the power of that spirit, to walk in my statutes and obey. Does understand this language that, like, now the possibility of obeying God's law is there. Not just because the law is in you, but because God himself is in you. And so if we're going to understand this promise of the new covenant, we're understanding this forgiveness from sins, this intimacy with God, these wonderful things. But then the idea is that it's going to result in obedience. So as we're thinking of our, our, our understanding of the Holy Spirit, if I'm going to understand this Holy Spirit to be whom he is, his presence should result in obedience to God's commands. That's why I will just be really honest. When someone tells me that the Holy Spirit has moved and that there was this big, exciting thing happened, and the next day, they're still behaving selfishly, right? If they say, well, God moved in this way, and I had this manifestation of the Spirit, and then the next day, or even that afternoon, they're awful to their family members, and we see no fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to say, you maybe had an emotional experience, but if it was the Holy Spirit, you would obey God more. So understand this, when we're developing our doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we need to understand His presence should result in obedience. That's what's promised. We're on that in a second. All right? Reading on. If I can. So notice this in John 3, 1 through 8. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and your heart is sound. But you do not know where it comes uh, from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And you all understand, I believe Jesus is referencing Ezekiel 36 right here. Now there are some who would say, well this means you've got to be born of water, that means born of woman, and then born of the Spirit, and that's like the second thing. And I think you can make that interpretation here of John 3, and that's okay. But if we're going to look at this in light of Scripture, I would say, in agreement with a lot of scholars, the language in Ezekiel is you're sprinkled clean with water, and you're born of the Spirit. You have an indwelling Spirit, and God washes you clean. The language I think Jesus is saying is that you need to be washed, you need to be made clean, as God promises in Ezekiel 36. That's forgiveness of sins. And then you need to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And apart from that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I believe in both of these things, Jesus is talking about regeneration. That like you're made whole, the Holy Spirit is in you. This is the good news of the new covenant. So with this in mind, we look to Acts 1 and 2. It says, in this first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles from whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will, baptize, uh, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Guess following this, the first promise in Ezekiel of the Holy Spirit's coming would be that you would be made clean, he would indwell you, and you would obey God. Now Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you will proclaim the gospel to all nations. You guys might remember that was a promise to Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to all the nations. That seed, Jesus has come. He's died to pay our sin debt. He rose from the dead. And now he's saying the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to go and proclaim the gospel. So two things here then. We're going to develop our theory, our theory, our theology of the Holy Spirit. I must first understand that his presence means I obey God Second, that the gospel is proclaimed. Again, I will say, when I hear about the Holy Spirit moving and jackets are waved and people supposedly fall out in the Spirit, right? Or when the Holy Spirit moves and it was a cool laser light show and some things happen and you're like, well, I really felt the Holy Spirit today. My question will be, are you obeying God more and are you proclaiming the gospel? Was the gospel preached that very day? And if the answer is no, I'm going to say, it probably wasn't the Holy Spirit. Because the two things built into the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit are obedience to God and proclamation of the gospel. So we read on. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read through this simply, and this is, I promise this won't take us long. We're finishing up here. Simply because this is what God promised. And here we see it happen in Acts chapter 2. 
It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Brothers and sisters, you guys remember? The Old Testament, the way that we knew the Holy Spirit was there was that a pillar of fire was over the tent of meeting. And now we have little pillars of fire over the heads of each of the believers. It says, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Does this also sound familiar? And at this sound, the multitudes came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Brothers and sisters, I'm just going to be really clear. What was happening in this speaking of tongues was not Babel. I use that word very clearly. They were not merely babbling nonsense. These were real languages being heard from all the nations. In many ways, this is the opposite of the Tower of Babel. And God is saying, my gospel is getting to the nations. So, uh, let's see, verse 7 says, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Figria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. This is all over. It says both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Notice what's happening. The Holy Spirit shows up. He's filling believers. People have heard the good news in their own languages. And watch what Peter says, or what Peter does in verse 14. He says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. For this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall not be turned shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. By the way, if you're in our study on Revelation, some of this will make extra sense to you. Peter continues, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst... As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his servants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all that we all are witnesses, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. You all understand what's happening. The promise was that the Holy Spirit would come. He would indwell believers. They would experience forgiveness for their sins. They would obey God, and the gospel would be preached to the nations. What we see here in Acts chapter 2 is the very beginning of that. So we're going to study more on the Holy Spirit in the coming first Sundays. For now, maybe we should understand this thing. I should be incredibly suspect to anything that is supposedly a move of the Spirit that does not result in obedience to God and proclamation of the gospel. We're going to talk a little bit more next time about how the Holy Spirit moves and we grow in spiritual fruit. For now, brothers and sisters, let's just understand. It's the Holy Spirit's seal on me. It's how I know I'm God's child. And when I come to faith in Christ, when I repent and believe the gospel, in myself I should see a change in my desires. I should have a new heart. The heart of stone should be gone. And I should be walking in obedience and proclaiming the gospel. If you want to know whether or not you have the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, that's how you know. And I know every now and then I talk to people who are worried because they're like, well, I don't speak in tongues. Am I not saved? Or I don't have this cool gift. I don't have the gift of teaching. Am I not saved? I've never prophesied. Am I not saved? I'll be like, do you proclaim the gospel? And do you grow in the fruits of the Spirit? And if you do, that doesn't happen unless the Holy Spirit is residing in you. And so praise the Lord if you've got those things. And if not, I don't care how much you speak in tongues. And I don't care how many miracles you supposedly have been involved in. If I don't see you obeying God and proclaiming the gospel, that question whether or not the seal of the Spirit is on you. So I would say, just like Peter, if you want the Holy Spirit, repent and believe the gospel. Be baptized. Praise God. All right. Um, so with that in mind, could I get a couple of the dads to grab the communion supplies? Um, thank you, guys. And while you're doing that, uh, since we've already proclaimed the gospel in reading of Acts chapter 2, um, yes, uh, I've got a couple of things here from uh, Kelly Young's book. Um, 
the greatest story. Uh, these are a couple of chapters related to the gospel, specifically as it relates to the resurrection. Um, I've got enough of these for maybe two per family. So Hannah, if you and one of the other girls want to hand those out, you are welcome to them. Um, Um, and then as we're doing that and we're bringing the communion stuff around, I would also say this is a wonderful opportunity for you to check your heart before the Lord. Make sure that you're clear. If there is anything between you and the Lord. I know we already had an opportunity to confess sin. Um, but if there's anything between you and the Lord, now is a good time to do it as we prepare to take communion. You may recall from this and other studies, we talk about the new covenant. God made a covenant with Israel that they could not keep. And then he makes this new covenant in Christ. And in this new covenant, as we said, the law of God's written in our hearts. Spirit is put into us. Our sin debt is paid. It is a new covenant because the truth is, have the Holy Spirit in me, making it possible for me to obey it. That's good news. I think it helps sometimes to think about the covenant violations of the Old Testament and recognizing, like, now we have the Holy Spirit in us. Brothers and sisters, the privilege of the Holy Spirit being in us is a huge thing. So on the night Jesus was to be betrayed, he spoke of the new covenant. So Lord, I'm going to ask that you would consecrate this this cracker and this juice uh, for your glory as we remember what you have done. On the night Jesus was to be betrayed, he took some bread and he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, and he said, This is the blood of my new covenant, poured out for many. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You have redeemed us. You have sealed us with your spirit. You put your law on our hearts. You put your Holy Spirit in us that we would walk in your statutes. So Lord, as we do things today like take communion, and as we remember the word of God, even as we continue in fellowship, God, may you receive glory. May we grow in the fruits of the spirit. May your word abide in us, that we would walk in newness of life, and that we would see the spiritual fruit grow for your glory. Uh, we ask all this in Christ's name, and we faithfully proclaim the gospel this week, and bring us back together safe in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all very much. <laughs>